welcome in to the show that likes making a short story long. <laughs> it's Aliens After Dark. I'm your host, Icarus Kane, and today we have a very fun episode. I'm super excited uh, for this episode. Uh, we're going to be doing Alcatraz, the escape attempts, the history, the kind of how it came about, and the more I did research and the more I looked into this, uh, the more insane the whole story and the whole like world seemed back then um i can't wait to get into this and explain what i mean and really dive into the to the story and the history of alcatraz um first i do want to address a couple things uh last episode (laughs) i fucked up and somehow i released the wrong episode that had not been edited (laughs) and sounded like shit and 17 of you if you're still listening unluckily heard that episode before i caught it and two days later and replaced it with the edited version so i apologize i deleted it before i could see how far people had listened like if most people just realized what happened and turned it off or if people listened all the way through so i'm sorry but that happened and if you didn't hear it and you happened to click on it after saturday and hear the the right one then you missed it and maybe i guess you were a little unlucky too because it was probably well you weren't it was probably torture (laughs) hilarious and uh, i think it's something to uh remember but uh (laughs) yeah so i just want to share that with you guys and address it if you were one of the unlucky or lucky 17 that heard it um that's what happened and the issue has been corrected (laughs) but for today's episode um we're gonna do alcatraz and i was gonna make it into you know i was just gonna do the uh the escape you know the escape from alcatraz the main thing you know the uh Sean Connery movie, the Clint Eastwood did the movie Escape from Alcatraz, Connery did The Rock. Um, tons of movies been made. Like it's kind of weird how our culture romanticizes certain crimes and certain things. Like all the prison break movies and shows, all the bank robbery movies and shows and like the heists and stuff and like art thieves and and like there's an art to it, you know. There's a there's a like like a respect it's like similar to like what we felt with Houdini you know like you're kind of getting one over on the man like yeah whatever you're in prison but if you have the brains to escape you know you're kind of it's like the D.B. Cooper thing like you're kind of a hero like you beat the man you beat the system you got out and a lot of times those things are like revered or like they're just romanticized in pop culture and and in society. And so as far as like certain crimes, like there's tons of movies and it's just, I think what's fascinating about it is people kind of go in their heads and think like, okay, how could I get away with it? Or how could I beat the system? Like, like you, you try to figure out this puzzle. Like if I were to ever do this, could I get away? Like, am I smart enough? Could I figure it out? And like, there's, I think people 
uh, rationalize it with like, there's a difference between stealing from an individual as opposed to stealing from like a, a corporation or a bank or something like these, you know, these fat cats already, you know, they don't need it. They're not going to miss it. They're not going to, you know, they're just going to write it off in their fucking taxes or what, you know, like it's just going to, they're going to get insured, you know, or whatever. Like they're not losing anything. So we rationalize it and make it kind of like not okay. I mean, I don't think people would openly admit and, you know, <laughs> encourage anybody to fucking rob a bank or escape from prison. But like the ones that we hear about that do, sometimes their stories are more likely to like kind of get promoted and get attention. And when you look at Alcatraz and the history in our country, like really kind of step back and look at it. Like I realized I had to do two episodes. <laughs> there's so much that happened before the, the escape, you know, the one escape that everybody knows, like there's so much that happened before it. That's just, I feel, I think just as important and just as interesting, like almost more interesting because the other, the main escape has been done at nauseum and uh, this story comes up a lot you know, on History Channel and on Discovery and all those things, like, and those details are kind of like, we all kind of know a lot of them, or at least listening to an episode about it can kind of jog your memory of some of the things that you already know. It's still interesting, you know, like, it's like it's new, because you don't know it off the top of your head anymore, but as soon as you're hearing it, you're like, okay, I, yeah, I remember that, I remember that, you know, and there's so much to to this story and before the escapes that I think needs to be shared and needs to be told. And I'm so excited to be probably one of the first ones to really go into this much depth on the history of, you know, what happened. I haven't heard a lot of, of podcast episodes that do an escape from Alcatraz that mention the stuff that happens before. So without dicking around much more, let's get into it. Okay, this story is crazy. So what is Alcatraz? So Alcatraz, what everybody knows it for, what you think of when you think of Alcatraz is you think of, you know, the island in the middle of fucking San Francisco Bay. And it's a prison. It was turned into a prison. And it's such a secure location because it's technically, I think it's like 1.25 or 1.3 miles from San Francisco shoreline. So from San Francisco beach or whatever, it's like a mile, 1.25 miles. It's also a mile in every direction, a little bit more than a mile or a mile and a half in every direction from any other land. That makes it extra secure. The San Francisco Bay is notoriously, uh, cold and the tides are extreme and the currents are crazy so it's really hard to swim in so let that be known you know kind of remember that also for a long time it doesn't really get brought up much anymore but for a long time there was like they would kind of perpetuate this rumor of like sharks being in the bay so you don't want to swim in the bay you don't want to like you know there's man-eating sharks out there so you want to be careful and all that shit so there's that kind of rumor going around but basically it's just supposed to be a super secure prison where the bad people go. The worst of the worst go to fucking Alcatraz, okay? So uh, there's a couple chain lean fences around the whole thing, but really, like, the island itself is the prison. They don't really need to fucking... The idea is you don't need to really fortify much because the 
the rock is the jail. So, and basically a couple guys escaped and possibly got away and it was open for a while and then it, and then it wasn't. That's what most people know about Alcatraz if you haven't really looked into this story and really dive into it. But there's so much more and it is so fascinating. So let's get into it. Let's just get right the fuck into it. So Alcatraz, it's got, so it's a prison. Uh, it's got chain link fence around it, uh, barbed wire on those chain link fences. Uh, it's got guard towers. It at one point was a military base, so they had like some shops and some other buildings and stuff. There's like mechanic shop, industries, buildings or whatever. Uh, there's, I think, a laundry mat or a laundry shop and then place for garbage to, you know, be dealt with. Um, so there's a few buildings aside from, like I said, it used to be a military uh, installation, so it was like barracks and stuff, but they also had a prison there. And then pretty much just rocks, water, death. <laughs> That's Alcatraz. So Alcatraz is a small rocky island in San Francisco Bay. It is a mile away from land in any direction. The U.S. government acquired California in 1848 because of the ending of the Mexican-American War. Uh, it was agreed upon in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that because of this treaty, like Mexico is giving California to the United States, which included Alcatraz Island. Uh, in 1853, so a couple of years later, in 1853, development and fortification began on the island and lasted until 1858, when Fort Alcatraz was officially established. Three years later, so this is 1858, three years later, in 1861, the Civil War breaks out. And over the next few years, 105 cannons were mounted around the island. However, being on the far west coast, the island never really saw any action. <laughs> uh, they never fired a gun or a cannon. So Alcatraz became a place to hold and store ammunitions taken from around the country from, you know, different Confederate stashes and different things that they, you know, battles that they won and stuff. They had stockpiles of ammunitions and weapons, and that all was stored at Alcatraz. And that would also keep them out of the Confederates' hands. It also became a place where Confederate sympathizers and Confederate prisoners were held in prison. Alcatraz began to hold soldiers in prison prison as early as 1859, and by 1861, the fort was a military prison for the Department of the Pacific. In 1867, a new brick jailhouse was built. The prisoners were previously held in the basement of the guardhouse. By 1868, Alcatraz was officially a long-term detention center. In 1909, the island got one more upgrade. Uh, construction on the new cement cell house began and was completed in 1912. Evolution of, of kind of what it had, how it had been built and acquired. Okay, so this is where it really kicks off. We're not going to get into this part of it, but there was a few, you know, throughout that time from like 1858 to like 1909, really even till 1934. There's a bunch of other escapes, a bunch of other, you know, th shits going on. It's not really what it was originally supposed to be, and it wasn't really as fortified as it had become 
to be. So, so this new cement cell house was uh, completed in 1912, and in 1934, Alcatraz was officially designated a federal prison. And because of the isolation and unique location, it became a prison for prisoners. I think one of the movies I saw uh, about the Battle of Alcatraz, there's like a new one that came out in, I think, 2018, and turns out it's on YouTube for free, so that was cool. Um, but one of the lines in the beginning, he says something like, uh, if you break the law, you go to prison. If you break the law in prison, you go to Alcatraz. And that's pretty much how it is. Like, you can't get sent to Alcatraz from the streets. It was only like the for the worst of the worst. So you you had to go to a you know, get sent to prison and then cause trouble there and get sent to Alcatraz from prison. Usually it's people who are escaping. Like a lot of times if the prison can't hold you, they're gonna send you to Alcatraz. So kind of a no brainer. But also, I mean it's it's for the people who are the most violent, who constantly cause problems, who are, you know, you go to prison and that's not working, then we'll send you to Alcatraz. Also, something a lot of people don't mention, the reverse is true. So you couldn't just do your time in Alcatraz and then get parole for like good behavior or whatever. The best you could do is you could earn your way to a prison on the mainland, basically. And then from there, you could try and get parole you couldn't just get out and go straight to the streets like you the best you could do is get to another prison and then you could prove your good behavior and and prove that you've repented you know or whatever and you can you could get out there but you couldn't just get out from Alcatraz most of the inmates at Alcatraz were either bank robbers or murderers and then a lot of them, probably most of them, <laughs> seems like most of them, they escaped from prison. Most of the guys have escaped from prison. And during the 29 years that Alcatraz was open, it held some of the most famous criminals in American history. Men like George Machine Gun Kelly, Bumpy Johnson, <laughs> uh, also known as the Godfather of Harlem, Robert Franklin Stroud, the Birdman of Alcatraz, who... I'm not, I don't understand why he got so much attention, but we'll get into him later. And then you have public enemy number one, Alvin Creepy Carpus, and probably most notably, public enemy number one, Al Capone. And so we'll get back to them in a little bit, but think about it. Those are all the guys, those are some of the guys that are on this island. Okay, so you have Machine Gun Kelly, Bumpy Johnson, Alvin Creepy Carpus, Al Capone. The last two guys are public enemy number one. I mean, Machine Gun Kelly was like close. <laughs> it's it's some famous names, some really popular names, and we'll get back to them because their stories are insane. They're fascinating. So over that 29 years, Alcatraz reported 14 escape attempts by 36 prisoners. Two men tried twice. <laughs> 23 were caught and returned to jail. Six were shot and killed. Two bodies were recovered in the bay, and five were presumed missing and drowned, bodies never recovered. Three of those bodies were of Frank Morris, John Anglin, and his brother, Clarence Anglin. 
and this is probably the most famous prison escape of all time like I don't know I can't I don't know of one that's more popular when you kind of like think of an actual prison escape like that one really comes stands out as like one of the top ones that people bring up I don't really know of another one that's really like I said, a lot of these guys have escaped from prison. This is kind of happening all the, all over the place. It's like the D.B. Cooper thing with plane hijackings. Like, shit's happening all over the place. It's just the big ones, you know, the ones that didn't get caught or were violent. Those are the ones that got the stories, but... Or got the attention. But this was happening all over the place. So, I mean, like... It's kind of crazy, and we'll, I'll probably say this, repeat this a couple times, but no wonder our government and our country is the way it is right now because we have a bunch of knuckleheads in the fucking 1920s and 30s causing a whole lot of chaos and mayhem and getting away with fucking everything getting away with murder bank robberies some of these guys one of these guys um he robbed over 80 banks (laughs) i'll mention that who he is and stuff later but like oh my god 80 fucking banks like a greedy son of a bitch (laughs) like i don't know what else to like this is a fucking like, yeah, the Wild West seems crazy, but it seems like, you know, we kind of have this image that all that stopped after a while, but then they invented machine guns and cars, and people were on a whole different level, like gangsters and mob bosses and all this shit, crime families, like, this shit changed when we got machine guns and fucking cars, and <laughs> it's just, it it's crazy, so I can't wait to get into more of this. So, back to the bodies. So I said... Five bodies presumed missing. Three of those bodies were Frank Morris, John, and Clarence Anglin. Okay. There's two more bodies. The lesser-known Theodore Cole and Ralph Rowe also escaped into the water, never to be seen again. The rest of today's episode, we're really going to go into the 14 attempts and kind of try to gain a perspective on what all's been tried and really the history of what happened with the lesser known escapes so on next week's episode we'll take a deeper look at the famous escape and what happened in 1962 the prison closed one year later in 1963 for a number of reasons Uh, mainly like everything it was because of money Uh, the buildings on the island were kind of eroding pretty quickly because of all the salt water and really just their age and because it's on the middle of the island, or it's on an island in the middle of the bay, it costs more to kind of bring out the supplies, and you know, just it just it's different. It costs more to build on the island. Um, also, the prison's cost of operation was way too high, so this is kind of I think this is the main reason why Alcatraz closed. Now, I think the famous escape is a big reason why it closed when it did. But, as we'll see later, it probably really, almost honestly, it probably didn't really affect it very much. It probably just made it, helped it along a lot, or helped it finalize a lot quicker. Like, really nail in the coffin, this is this is going to be done. Which we'll get to later. So, the cost of operation was way too high. At Alcatraz, it cost about $10 per person per day. Atlanta prison it cost about $3 per day. So, huge difference. Like, huge difference. <laughs> oh, and then also, three prisoners just escaped from this escape-proof prison. <laughs> and 
it's not really if they escaped or if they drowned or whatever, however you try to spin it. The public thought they escaped and kind of was rooting for them to have escaped. So it's like, it's again, it's kind of that romanticizing thing. Like you kind of hope they root in for them to kind of succeed, to kind of win it, you know? Especially when there's like no violence, like nobody's really getting hurt. So let's go all the way back to the very first escape, okay? So on August 11th, 1934, at 9.40 a.m., 137 prisoners arrive at Alcatraz. Now, the prison was built in the 1800s, but it went through some pretty big upgrades throughout the years. Uh, in 1909, and then again in 1933 to 1934, it got some more upgrades. The problem was, there were still areas of Alcatraz that were older. Uh, most importantly, D-Block, and it seems like some areas in the industries building on one of the far ends of the island. Okay. And I mean, you kind of have to put yourself in that time or, you know, in that setting. Like it's the middle of the depression. Like people don't got money to just be thrown around. So because of the money issues, basically most of the prison was upgraded. Uh, the bars and the windows were reinforced with carbon. Uh, which makes them a lot harder. Uh, it also kind of weakens them in the diff in a different way. If you add too much carbon, it can make it really brittle and easier to kind of break. So that's important in some of them later. But for the most part, it, all it does is harden them, which really you can't cut something with something softer. So it really just makes it harder to cut through or saw through or you know take down. Uh, in D block, the bars on the cells were untreated and much softer. Uh, they were these flat prison bars that were left over from, you know, the 1800s. They really hadn't had much of a upgrade and they certainly weren't reinforced. They were a much softer, I think it was just steel. So again, just keep that in mind. Uh, there were windows in D block and the bars on the windows, those were reinforced, but the bars on the cells in D block, which is basically just a cell house inside of another bigger area of the, you know, bigger building. It's like a box inside of a box inside of a box, you know? So that area was, uh, the bars were not reinforced. Okay. So the first escape attempt on April 27th, 1936, just two years after being open, a man named Joseph Bowers was working at the trash incinerator. And he was basically used burning trash. So on the island, prisoners were able to have jobs uh, if they had, you know, if they were, if they were good, if they had good behavior. It's basically free labor. So there, were, I think there was a place where they built cement blocks, uh, or maybe that was just in the uh, Clint Eastwood movie. But they had different jobs. Like I said, there was trash jobs, laundry jobs. There's a kitchen, bakery, uh, you know, cafeteria jobs. They have gardening you know they had some some of the guys to make or to keep up with the landscaping and whatever so they had you know things that they were having the prisoners do joseph bowers he's working trash duty and he drops his bag and books it to the fence and basically just begins to climb over uh, at any given point depending on how close the edge is to the cliff there's one or two chain lean fences so some of the areas there's two some of the areas it's right up on the cliff so i don't think there was two 
all the fences have barbed wire on the top, but you know, it is what it is. So he runs and starts climbing the fence and trying to get over. Uh, he was quickly seen and ordered to stop and, you know, come down by an officer in the West Guard Tower. He either didn't hear him or ignored him or, you know, just refused and continued to climb. So the guard shot a couple above his head, missed, you know, and that didn't deter him. And then he either, it, it was kind of confusing. He either shot him and hit him or he shot a couple over his head and one of those hit him or he didn't hit him at all. And this poor guy just fell when he was kind of getting over to the other side of the fence and he fell onto the rocky ground, you know, rocky slant incline below him on the other side where he died. So this is the first real attempt and the guards show that it's kind of, you know, this, this shoot to kill order is, you know, this shit's real. Like there's no joking around here. So there's kind of like confusion on what happened and some of the inmates had you know their points of view and their theories and I think some of the guys said that he was told to climb up the fence and clean trash out of the fence and some of the guys were kind of just like he was fucking losing his shit and wasn't doing well in here and you know and then there was this kind of discussion between the inmates and or not really argument but just about the whole thing and like some people said he was murdered and then other people said he was committing suicide so it's kind of like this like shift in who you know how they were viewing the situation and, and how the image was coming to their heads like some guys thought he was you know it's suicide you've given up if you're trying to escape like you you're ready to die and you're done with living life in prison you know <laughs> and so you're gonna you know you're not gonna stop you're not gonna take me alive type of thing and then some guys thought it was cruel and thought it was, you know, thought it was murder. But it is what it is. Side note, Bowers had made multiple suicide attempts and was considered to be, by many, insane. We'll get back to the effect that Alcatraz had on the mind. But for now, let's move on to the next attempt. About a year and a half later, on December 16th, 1937, Theodore Cole and Ralph Rowe made their escape. So real quick, I do want to mention like the more I was reading into this and looking up the story. So the prison was in operation for, again, about 29 years or 29 years, about 30 years. So you just have this prison on this fucking island on this rock in the middle of the San Francisco Bay where all the fucking worst of the worst go, all these fucking famous mobsters go, and they're just on this island for fucking 30 years. The only way they're getting off is, most of them, the only way they get off is in a fucking box. Like, they're not, you know, the only way they get off is is they die. <laughs> so it's all the same guys. Like, there are guys that are added, but for the most part, this is like the same group of guys the entire time so like it just kept like it be kept becoming more obvious that like you know it's all the same people it's like a cast on a show or like a family like it's all the same guys and they're all so interconnected because i mean there's only a couple hundred guys like you know it's just a bunch of guys on this fucking island and and it's a bunch of fucking hooligans and knuckleheads that were just out causing mayhem and 
now they're all on a fucking island together. We'll get into it a little bit more, but it's just, it's fascinating how much and how often they all like show up or, or intertwine each other's lives. So, uh, as a time of escape, Theodore Cole was 25 and Ralph Rowe was 31. Um, both men were bank robbers and both men had previously escaped from different prisons. Uh, so you'll kind of, that's a theme that will run through a lot of this. And kind of ironically, like I said, a lot of these same names will keep popping up, but it's like everything. It's like, it's the same couple of prisons. It's the same couple of places that they escape from. It's the same kind of methods that they use to escape. It's the same, they're all different, but like, you'll kind of see like, the weaknesses in the prison are definitely the same few places that keep being exploited, um, if that makes sense. But uh, it's just a bunch of bank robbers who have been getting, who have been escaping from prisons all over the country. Uh, mostly, it's Leavenworth, uh, Kansas, and Atlanta, uh, federal penitentiary in Atlanta. It's just, it's just these same things keep popping up. <laughs> and what I also found interesting was that a lot of t a lot of these guys are bank robbers which requires a lot of planning and so does planning an escape from prison like it's all a lot of like you know you case the joint you make sure you know you study everything and, and you plan every detail meticulously so you can guarantee success they both escaped from different prisons and were both sent to Leavenworth Prison in Kansas in 1936 and then were transferred to Alcatraz, where they were both given jobs in the prison's mat shop. This is a place where they took, it's in the industries building, and it's where they took old car tires and basically turned them into rubber mats for the Navy. Again, the mat shop was in the industries building, which is one of the places that didn't get a full upgrade. And some of the bars on the windows still had flat bars without the reinforcement. Uh, so again, that's what I was talking about earlier. Like they went through and reinforced a lot of the bars with extra carbon and made them harder and almost impossible to saw through. But some of them they didn't, and some of them were specifically in the industries building in the mat shop. Flat bars might have taken you a few days to kind of saw through, depending on how long you were able to saw at it. But usually you only have like, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes tops to actually like do your sawing a day. So like to kind of put that in perspective with the flat bars, it would only take a couple days and then you'd be able to saw through. The other ones, the reinforced ones, you were not getting through. Um, so these guys are working in the mat shop and possibly a few days before or weeks or months before the escape, they sawed through the bars around the window. Uh, so they got through them. A lot of the guys would use like a mixture of grease and a mixture of grease and oil to kind of make this like putty. And they would use that to kind of uh, disguise the bars or, or whatever they had cut through. They would use that to kind of disguise it. On December 16th, 1937, they made their move. They were working in the shop when a routine head count accounted for all prisoners at 1 o'clock. By the next head count at 1.30, they were gone. They went and they stole uh, a wrench and some gas cans, and then they climbed out of the window that they had, you know, they had sawed through the bars. So they climb out this window. Now, earlier that morning, a dense fog 
had rolled in. This is one of like the densest fogs of the year and it came out of nowhere and it rolled in and there was like zero visibility. So maybe that's why they chose to go on this day. Like that, that probably was why, but they just got super lucky and saw their, you know, the window open metaphorically and they jumped through it (laughs) literally. (laughs) Uh, But either way, they slipped down to the gate of a high wire fence and under the cover of the fog, they used the wrench to to pry open the lock. And they dropped down about 20 feet to the beach and were never seen again. Now, during the search and investigation, all they found on the beach was the wrench. Uh, they even flooded some of the island's caves with tear gas in an attempt to like flush anybody out, but uh, they got nothing. So, like I said, a lot of these guys keep coming up and one of those guys, his name is Alvin Carpus or Alvin Creepy Carpus. Uh, I mentioned him earlier, but uh, he was public enemy number one, and he's a guy that'll come up a lot throughout the story. But anyways, he always seems to to see shit. He says that he saw them on the beach from his window. He sa- he states that he saw Roe with a five-gallon can in the water, and then the can came up from under him and shot up into the air, and Roe was sucked under. Cole, he said was swept out by the current towards the Golden Gate Bridge, like, right away. Apparently, at that point, he decided, like, if he was going to escape, it's not going to be by the water. Like I said, this guy's got, like, opinions about everything and and witnesses everything. It's kind of crazy. I've only seen this account by Carpus, like, in one source. So take it for what you will. I couldn't verify, you know, if it was an accurate account or if he even said this. So to, again, take it for what you will. That's uh, that's just an aspect that I a detail that I did want to bring in because like you have somebody saying, allegedly you have somebody saying that, you know, you basically watched them both get taken by the current. Um, ultimately, the conclusion of the investigation was that both men drowned in the bay. At that time, they estimated the current was moving between seven to nine knots, and. You got to remember it was December 16th, so the water is even colder than normal uh, during this time of year, midwinter. And they said, I think it was about between 46 and 58 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, And because of the fog, it would have been impossible for like a passing boat to see them or find them. Uh, Like if they had like somebody, you know, waiting to pick them up, it would pretty much be impossible for anybody to like find them in the fog. And also because of the fog, it would have been near impossible for them to really get their bearings or even like stay together for that matter. Like unless they use a rope, but I mean, that's dangerous just because if somebody drowned, he pulls you down with him. But like, if you kind of think about it, like the fog is so dense. If you lose sight or track of your, you know, your, your escapee, your friend, your partner, just because of the turbulence of the water along with the fog like you would lose each other you'd separate right away and then again it would just it would make things a lot harder you wouldn't even know which direction you're swimming you wouldn't know if you're heading towards the bridge towards land or just in a fucking circle really you wouldn't fucking know so um i don't know take it for what you will but they pretty much just like concluded that the you know these guys drowned and didn't make it uh now i will say that the prison was pretty uh pretty cocky Uh, a lot of times they would do things that didn't really make sense like why are you letting the prisoners do that but then they were like super cocky like this is escape proof nobody's getting out of here all the people who try still get caught or they die like nobody's 
nobody's succeeding here. So they were kind of cocky, and the prisoners definitely used that uh, to their advantage and in some cases. Famously, uh, the warden said, the water is too cold, the tide is running too high, and land is too far. Their bodies, though, were never recovered. So if they did make it, it would be sheer luck. But they were presumed dead. For some reason, this escape gets way less attention than the other successful escape. Like, there seemed to be two main escapes where the people vanished without, you know, ever being seen again. And for some reason, this one, they think they died. And the other one, they think they made it. And I guess, I mean, it's not for some reason. The other one, they went in the summer, so the water's not as cold. There wasn't this crazy fog. You know, a lot of this circumstances were a little different. So because of that, that's why they think that these guys, you know, didn't make it. And that this wasn't, didn't draw as much attention as the famous one. So those are the first two attempts. Um, on the next attempt, the third attempt, this is when the violent streak happens, or really begins in uh, the escape attempts. Like the None of them had really been that violent, or violent at all, uh, before this third attempt. Uh, but before we get into that, let's take a quick break, and we'll come right back and jump right back into it. So, uh, enjoy these tunes. just gonna get right back into it because this is like I'm so interested in like when I was reading through this and finding all this out like it is just so fascinating to me so interesting so let's just get right back into it okay so about six months later um, so the Theodore uh, Cole and Ralph Rowe their attempt was in December on December 16th 1937 so about six months later May 23rd 1938 Rufus Franklin, Thomas Limerick, and James Lucas begin their attempt. Uh, by the way, side note, James Lucas is the guy who stabbed Al Capone a couple times two years earlier in 1936. Um, I'll explain that later, but yeah, crazy fucking story. So again, all of these guys, a lot of these guys, the names that I'm, you know, that are involved in some of the escape attempts, their names keep popping up in different ways in different spaces and areas and whatever. Like I said, it's just like this, like, island of hooligans or fucking knuckleheads that just raise a ruckus all over the country and then get sent to this island and so they're all like there together except for the ones that died which is fucking crazy another side note in 1934 the year that the prison opened <laughs> tons of mobsters were killed so none of them got sent to Alcatraz so for example um, I'll just read a list of them that died in th 1934 and would probably have ended up at, at Alcatraz. Uh, John Red Hamilton, Bonnie and Clyde, <laughs> John Dillinger, public enemy number one, Fat Charles, or Charles Mackley, Charles Arthur Floyd, or Pretty Boy Floyd, public enemy number one, and Babyface Nelson, also public enemy number one. So all these guys are shot and killed. Um, again, Bonnie and Clyde, Babyface Nelson, uh, Pretty Boy Floyd, John Dillinger, Fat Charles, all these 
big names are killed in 1934, the year the prison opens. So they don't even get a shot and it would probably be some of the characters at this fucking prison had they not been killed already. Oh, here's a kind of ironic detail I just noticed. The first attempt in 1936 was by one guy. The second attempt was by two guys. And the third attempt is by three guys. Holy shit. How many is in the fourth attempt? Okay, yeah, the fourth attempt is five guys. Okay. So, <laughs> so James Lucas stabs Al Capone a couple years earlier. And then at some point he meets up with, gets to know Rufus Franklin and Thomas Limerick. And they, you know, begin planning their escape on their big attempt. So on May 23rd, 1938, they attacked and killed a guard named Royal Klein with a fucking claw hammer. Uh, they were in the wood shop in the industries building and basically were just trying to like bum rush it, like rush the escape, you know, rush the gates or whatever. That was kind of seemed to be their plan. Um, so they attacked this guy, Royal Klein, with a claw hammer in the wood shop in the industries building. Uh, and then they made their way to the roof where they were trying to take out the guard in the roof tower. This guy's name is Harold Stites. Again, he will come up a lot. So not just the inmates, the uh, guards as well. Their, their names seem to come up a lot. So Harold Stites, basically he says that they threw something at, at the window. Um, can't remember what it was that they threw but they were they picked some things up on the roof and they were like running at the window when they noticed him in the guard tower and they were throwing things trying to break the window they didn't he stood his ground and like ultimately he shot franklin and limerick who died later from their injuries uh stites was called a hero in the papers the next day and lucas the guy who stabbed capone he was soon cornered by the guards and surrendered Things were quiet for about eight months until January 13th, 1939, when the largest group to date attempts their plan of action. So we have Doc Barker, William Martin, Rufus McCain, Henry Young, and uh, Dale Stamphill. So real quick, um, Arthur Doc Baker, his mother, Ma Barker, was head of the Barker crime family. He kind of grew up in this crime family, and when he got older, he formed the Barker Carpus gang and if the name Carpus sounds familiar that's the guy Alvin Creepy Carpus him and Doc Barker kind of were like the heads of this this uh this other gang so I believe if I can remember correctly it was Dale Stamphill ah oh, man I think it was Dale Stamphill it might have been Rufus McCain that figured out how to how to um, basically just saw through the bars. Um, Doc Barker seems to have been the leader, but some of the other guys were, were definitely adding to the group. So now Doc and the four other guys, they saw through their flat bars on their cells, um, but they couldn't saw through the window bars, so they basically used this mixture of grease and shoe polish to kind of conceal the cut bars in their cells, and then they, they had to figure this, you know, what are we going to do with the windows? So... Barker has somebody in the mechanic area, mechanic shop, basically just make him a bar spreader. It's basically like a jack for your car, but 
you put it in between two bars and you can twist it and it'll it'll you know it'll pop the bars it'll it'll break them um, it spreads them or separates them but because they're so reinforced they're brittle and they'll tend to break so that's their plan for the bars on the windows sometime on the night of january 13th 1939 doc and his men they slipped out of their cells and split the bars on the window and made it down to the beach so this is kind of how like the story goes and how it's remembered or told often but there's some uh, nuances that i'll that i'll explain so barker and stampill immediately tried to swim but were pushed back by the tide supposedly so all the men then began to gather wood and debris and try to make some kind of you know makeshift raft they began ripping their clothes to kind of use as like cloth and tie the shit together and while they were while they were doing this they're trying to make this little raft on the beach the fog kind of lifts around where they're at and then they were spotted the men claim to have never heard the guards orders and warnings before they heard the guns <laughs> uh, stamp hill was shot in the leg and barker was shot in the head all the men were recaptured and sent back to solitary barker was pronounced dead later that evening uh, there's a couple discrepancies and kind of like different stories or tellings like one of the guys says that well, I think it's Stamphill says that uh, he got shot in the leg and so did Barker and then they kind of had orders to like if Barker moved they'd shoot him in the head or something and they had already shot him like in the shoulder again and he was like leaning down to adjust the wound on his leg while they were like recaptured in the boat and they just shot him in the head in the boat so <laughs> There's some different tellings. I'm not exactly, couldn't exactly like nail down which one was true, but basically that's kind of what happened. They, they all lived except for Barker. He was shot in the head and everybody just got recaptured. So here's some little nuances. So once recaptured, Stamp Hill heads to the hospital, basically their infirmary there and stays in the prison hospital for a little while until his wounds heal. And then he goes to solitary. Um, Henry Young, Rufus McCain, and William Martin, they go straight to solitary. So they spend the next three years in solitary confinement, and then 11 days after being released back into general population, Henry Young kills Rufus McCain. Now, again, this is just like a big cast, a big like, I guess imagine it kind of like a high school, right? So it's like, it may be like two or three, four hundred people, but it's all the same people every year, you know, like throughout the four years that you're there or whatever. Like it's just like that on a 30 year scale. And they're just like all the same people, all the drama, you know, all the uh, gossip. <laughs> so again, according to this guy, Carpus, uh, he said that Young blamed McCain for the failed attempt. Apparently, McCain couldn't swim. And Doc Barker refused to leave anyone behind. And Doc Barker was dead, so he couldn't really blame him. So Young blames McCain because Barker made them turn around and try to make a, you know, try to make a raft. And then they were caught. Now, again, the story before says that the tide pushed them back and that's why they started to make a raft. But really it was because this guy McCain couldn't swim and that really pissed off. Henry Young, who 11 days after being out is like, fuck this shit, I'm killing this guy. Like, what are they going to do, give me more time 
in solitary. Like, it just been three years. Like, bring it on. Also, I don't understand that, like, yeah, I'm sure he wanted to get out, but if you can't swim, like, what the fuck were you going to do? Like, what the fuck was your plan? Like, why would you even go along with that? You know that's fucking sure death, certain death. Like, maybe that's the suicide aspect of it, but, like, what what are you going to... What was your fucking plan, McCain? Like, the fuck? I'd be pissed, too. Like, what the fuck, guy? But I digress. Uh, let's move on to the next one, uh, the fifth escape attempt. So next we have a few guys whose names will start coming up a lot, but we'll kind of get into them. So we have Joe Kretzer, Sam Shockley, Arnold Kyle, and Lloyd Barkdahl. Okay, so who the fuck are these guys? So Joe Kretzer and Arnold Kyle, before they were in prison and everything, they got in trouble. They were part of the Kretzer-Kyle gang. Uh, They basically ran around the West Coast and did a bunch of crimes on the West Coast. Kretzer and Kyle, before being sent to Alcatraz, uh, Kretzer was also sent, Kretzer and Kyle, were sent to McNeil Island Penitentiary, which is funny because it's another fucking island. Um, So they were sent to McNeil Island Penitentiary before Alcatraz, and they escaped sometime in 1940. So that's a year before this. Uh, They survived for three days with no food and no water, and it was just Kretzer and Kyle. They were caught in the woods on the island, and basically this island, I mean, it's it's not just a rock in the middle of the bay. Like, there's a bunch of woods and stuff. So basically they stole a truck, and a prison truck, and got out, hid out in the woods, and finally three days later they were caught. Side note, uh, Kretzer had robbed about 80 banks. <laughs> but when they were on trial for their escape, uh, Kretzer and Kyle basically tried to escape again. <laughs> uh, they brutally attacked and killed a federal marshal. Um, basically, they were at this trial uh, at the courthouse, and everybody literally is going for a lunch break, and they try and escape and kill this marshal. And that's when they were sent to Alcatraz in 1940. So Arnold Kyle and Joe Kretzer from the Joe, from the uh, Kretzer-Kyle gang, they know each other pretty damn well. They meet Sam Shockley and Lloyd Barkdahl and basically make a plan and go for an escape. And also I, I will state a lot of these guys are pretty fucking violent. In this group, um, at least three of these guys, Sam Shockley is kind of a Kind of a fucking wild card. <laughs> um, and then Kretzer and Kyle are both, you know, not afraid of murder. Not a whole lot about Barkdahl, but his name kind of only shows up here. But anyways, um, so on May 21st, 1941, they were working in the industries area when they jumped the guards and attempted to saw through the toolproof, you know, reinforced window bars um, that would lead to the beach. They failed to cut through the bars and basically just surrendered when they realized the futility of their efforts. Like, they were just like, okay, fuck. Joe Kretzer and Sam Shockley would try again almost four years later in probably the second most famous escape attempt at Alcatraz, dubbed the Battle of Alcatraz, but we'll get to that later. This next attempt, uh, it seems like kind of a blip in the history of Alcatraz, um, but this one, it just, it, it seems comical. So... A couple months later, um, on September 15th, 1941, John Bayliss was working on garbage duty. 
when he eluded his guards and made it to the beach. Uh, he gave up shortly after entering the water. Basically, I kind of imagine this one is like, he makes it all the way down to the beach real quick and he's just like, okay. And he runs into the water and then just turns and runs back. Like, nope. Like, oh, hell no. Like, this is way too fucking cold. I'm not fucking doing this. Like, I, that's what I would do. Like, I'd be all for it and then I fucking touch the water and like, nope. Like, dip a toe in and then fucking turn and, you know, <laughs> go fucking put the cuffs on myself and walk myself, you know, lock myself back into the fucking cell. Like, no, thank you. Hell no. <laughs> so that was his attempt. He basically made it to the beach and was like, nope. And came back. <laughs> like, I was like, I'm not doing this. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Uh, later, while in court in San Francisco for the attempt, uh, Bayless tried to escape again and was also unsuccessful in escaping the courtroom, <laughs> which is just kind of funny. Like, all right, man, like this time you don't got water, you know, blocking you. This is your best shot because you don't have to deal with the water. Like if you can just escape the courtroom or somewhere on the drive there or something like that's your best shot of not having to deal with the water. But he couldn't he couldn't make that happen either. So two more years go by on the rock before the next escape attempt. On April 14th, 1943, four more men would try their luck at overcoming the rock's grip. But they could not smell what the rock was cooking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so again, on April 14th, 1943, while working in the mat shop in the industries building, four men, James Borman, Harold Brest, Floyd Hamilton, and Fred Hunter. They assembled four cans with army uniforms inside to use as like, the cans were like flotation devices and obviously the uniforms were disguises. So they get these four cans and they're ready to, you know, that's what they're gonna use in the water. I think this is the first time where somebody's actually like successfully bringing something as a flotation device. There was the one, the Doc Barker's crew where he was trying to make a raft on the beach with whatever they could, you know, could find, but that seemed really like improvised, like it was on the spot. Um, this one was premeditated. <laughs> uh, so they're in the mat shop, and basically they proceed to overpower two guards, which they then bound and and gagged. The men then escaped out the window with bars cut. Two of the four cans were left behind. Side note: I couldn't find out if they cut the bars or how or who. Or how long that aspect had taken them it just everything i was finding just said that you know they the bars were cut and they escaped out of them so i couldn't really nail that detail down i just wanted to kind of be clear on that but they escaped out of the window with the bars cut two of the four cans were left behind and they basically make their way to the beach and begin to enter the water meanwhile one of the guards <laughs> Like this, imagine this scene is like perfect for Hollywood. Like this is like from a movie. So meanwhile, one of the guards got his whistle loose and the other guard somehow managed to slip his gag and blow the first guard's whistle. So <laughs> I just remember that scene in Pineapple Express when like their hands are duct taped behind their back and they're trying to get out and they're like, he's like, rub your hands on my belt buckle and we can break the <laughs> we can uh break the duct tape and so he's like it basically just looks like they're fucking each other and 
it's hilarious. So I just kind of imagine like these two guards are bound and gagged and one of them gets the whistle and the other one slips his gag and is like <laughs> just trying to blow the whistle and it just must have been hilarious if there was like footage of that. But anyways, needless to say, uh, the bound officers were able to blow their whistle and alert the guards in the tower who immediately opened fire on the escapees. Borman and Brest were together in the water when Borman was shot. Brest was even still supporting Borman in the water when the boat pulled them out of the bay. Uh, Borman's body then sank to the bottom and was never recovered. Fred Hunter had hurt himself during the escape and his hands were bleeding and his back was all fucked up, so he pretty much gave up right away and found refuge in a cave nearby. Two hours later, he was found because of the blood trail at the entrance of the cave. Uh, the guards fired a warning shot into the cave, and Hunter surrendered right away. Now, the last guy, uh, Floyd Hamilton, he was thought to have been shot in the water and must have sank just like Borman. They just, you know, somehow they lost him, uh, didn't see him, but they were like, surely he, he got shot and uh, was just taken by the water. But he survived. Uh, <laughs> his story is crazy. So Hamilton was hiding under a pile of rubber tires in the same cave that Hunter had been found in. And two days later, you know, no food, no water, just being battered by the fucking tides, you know, soaking wet for two days probably, he climbs out of the cave and climbs back up the cliff and through the same window he had escaped from and exhausted, he hid under a, a pile of random material in the storeroom. He was found the next morning. It hadn't been but four months before the next attempt on Alcatraz was made. This next guy, uh, his name is uh, Huron Ted Walters. His nickname was Terrible Ted. So this guy already sounds crazy. Um, on August 7th, 1943, Terrible Ted made his move. He had noticed that on weekends there were less guards on duty. And on a Saturday, he was working in the new industries building doing laundry when he slipped the guards and made his way to the fences. Terrible Ted has terrible luck. Uh, so he makes his way to the fences and he had with him some wire cutters. I couldn't find out. I couldn't verify if he made the wire cutters or if he just stole them. I'm pretty sure he just stole them. But basically he has some wire cutters and he, and he makes his way down to the beach. And his plan is instead of going over the fence to just cut through and... At the place where he was trying to escape, at the area that he was at, uh, he had to cut through two fences, and then he would just climb down to the beach and swim about 1.3-ish miles to San Francisco. But this poor fucking schmuck. <laughs> His shit went sideways from the beginning. Like, from the get-go, fucked up. He gets to the first fence. Again, there's two fences. He gets to the first fence, and for some reason, he can't get his wire cutters to cut through the fence. So, <laughs> he's just like, fuck. Like, I'm sure he was just like, fuck, man. Like, fuck it. Like, I came this far. I'm fucking doing this. Like, so he decides to climb the fence, which ended up costing him time and was the main thing that he was trying to avoid doing. Like, the whole reason he brought the wire cutters was because he was like, I'm not climbing the fence. Like, <laughs> the one thing he wasn't trying to do, he has to do. So he's like, fuck it. So he climbs the first fence, it's taking him a lot of time, 
And then on the second fence, he falls onto the rocks on the other side and messes up his back real good. <laughs> he finally makes it down to the beach and basically at that point just gives up. Or probably more likely he realizes that he's not going to be able to make the swim with his back the way it is right now. And it's just kind of, it's over. Uh, Captain of the guards, Henry Weinhold, picks him up on the beach and returns Walters. Uh, he's first taken to the prison hospital for a while and then to solitary. That poor fucking guy. <laughs> he kind of... <laughs> kind of like the other guy like at least he had a reason for giving up you know the other guy was like water's too cold and this guy terrible ted just had terrible luck and (laughs) uh so the ninth attempt this is probably my favorite attempt my favorite escape um after terrible ted things were quiet for a couple years but on july 31st 1945 john k giles feels lucky i've heard it pronounced giles or giles but we're going to go with Giles. So John Giles had a history of bank robbery, murder, and of course, prison escape. And he had come up with a plan to beat the Bay. He came to Alcatraz in 1935. And for 10 years, he was a model inmate. All the guards liked him. And more significantly, all the guards trusted him. It's likely that his good behavior is what lands him this cushy job working on the docks. Uh, Basically, he's just sweeping up after new shipments and unloading army laundry that was sent to the prison to be cleaned. So over time, (laughs) possibly 10 years, you know, he's there for 10 years. Like, he came in 1935, and it's now 1945. So over that 10 years, once he got this job, Giles stole and assembled an entire U.S. Army technical sergeant's uniform. Like, all of it got the whole fucking all the parts and pieces took him fucking 10 years but he fucking got it all on july 31st 1945 giles takes note of a visiting army boat that is almost ready to head back to san francisco or so he thinks he quickly gathers the pieces of uniform that he had hidden around the wharf dons his disguise and simply walks on board (laughs) but Instead of heading for San Francisco, the boat is going to Angel Island, which is another military dock. (laughs) Um, Almost immediately after leaving, he's discovered missing. Uh, Guard Philip Bergen was waiting for him with handcuffs as soon as he stepped off the boat onto Angel Island. Reportedly, Giles says, I thought that GD dub was going to San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) Like, as soon as he's like, realizing i mean it's clear to see you can see san francisco from the fucking island as soon as he realizes they're not heading that way he must have been like what the fuck like what the fuck where are we going like where what the fuck is going on (laughs) first of all if they know i'm here why aren't they going back to the jail and why like where are we going once he was returned to uh to alcatraz the inmates began calling him wrong way giles but for the most part everybody respected him i mean like he fucked up even though he like got made fun of they respected him, you know, for the for his effort. <laughs> that one's easily my favorite because he's like, fuck this, man. Like, there's tons of boats coming in and out. I don't know why you wouldn't figure out a way to, like, escape on one of the leaving boats. I'm sure it was protected and a lot harder, but, I mean, you got time to figure it out. <laughs> um, the next escape attempt, uh, the 10th attempt. This attempt was easily the most violent and probably the most famous attempt in Alcatraz history outside of 
the Morris and the Anglin brothers attempt, of course. But this one was famous in its own right. Uh, it was so famous, in fact, that it even got a name, or a couple names. Uh, sometimes it was called the Alcatraz Blastout, or better known as the Battle of Alcatraz. Real quick, before we get into this one, the prison opened in 1934. While they're bringing in new prisoners, no one has really left. Like I mentioned, the only way you're leaving is in a box, you know? Like, the guys who fucking drowned in their escape attempts or were shot and killed because of their escape attempts, like, those are the way, or if you, you know, if you died for some reason. But that that's how you got off the island. You didn't, people weren't leaving. So all the guys, new guys were coming in, but nobody was leaving. So you got an island full of gangsters, mobsters, bank robbers, murderers, escape artists, and they all know each other. Like, many of the names just keep coming up. Like, for one, they a lot of them know each other on the outside, and if they, you know, a lot of them were famous, so they at least knew each other from the papers, but if they didn't, they had heard about each other, and they met in person, you know, on this fucking rock. And let's let's just get into a couple of them. So, most famously, you have Al Capone. So let's go into his his uh, story real quick. So, it's important to know that Capone, crime lord or whatever, crime boss, um, organized crime, all this shit, you know, he didn't get convicted of like killing anybody or or anything crazy like they got him on fucking tax evasion capone was charged with 22 counts of tax evasion and was convicted on five counts on october 31st 1931 and sentenced to 11 years in prison so this is three years before alcatraz opens in 1932 capone was sent to atlanta u.s penitentiary but his time there was short-lived other inmates complained of special treatment which basically meant they were tired of Capone getting special treatment. <laughs> you can look up his uh, cell at the prison in Atlanta. He had like carpet, rugs, uh, curtains on his window, like a nicer bed, super nice like sheets, a couple pillows. You know, he had a you know a couple bookshelves. He had a brand new state of the art radio. He had a cell to himself. I'm sure like a bigger cell. Like he had all these like perks. And some of the other prisoners were getting tired of it. And complained enough to like kind of get him sent to Alcatraz in 1934, where he became just another guy. <laughs> um, like I mentioned earlier, he was stabbed a few times in 1936 by that guy uh, James Lucas. Uh, the injury, they, you know, there were minor injuries, but so I mean, he survived it, but kind of significant because like I, I watched another interview about um, Alcatraz or another documentary, and there was this interview where they were interviewing a few of the uh, surviving inmates who had, who had done time on Alcatraz. And, you know, these are old guys, but they're, you know, they're telling their stories. And uh, one of the guys is like, you know, yeah, like I, I knew Capone and, you know, he was a big guy, but he was you know, he was just, just a fucking guy, you know, like he didn't have all his fucking goons and his fucking machine guns and all his fucking, you know, weapons and shit. He didn't have all his power and everything. Like he was just another fucking guy. So like he didn't, he didn't fuck with, people you know <laughs> like you're just another dude in a fucking cell on the fucking rock um capone if you don't know much about his history capone was basically at the beginning of uh his imprisonment uh he was pretty quickly or maybe before it he was diagnosed with uh, syphilis and during his time at alcatraz the syphilis was untreated and it pretty much destroyed him like it destroyed his mental faculties he was only released because 
the syphilis had kind of taken over and, and he was a delusional bumbling kind of idiot by that point. Like he, they had let this fucking disease ravage him and he was just a shell of who he used to be. Then you have George Machine Gun Kelly. He was also brought to the island in 1934. So him and Capone, you know, same year, brought to the island together. Alvin Creepy Carpus, you know, all these guys brought in 34. He spent 17 years of his 21-year sentence on Alcatraz before being quietly transferred to Leavenworth, Kansas in 1951. He died three years later in Leavenworth Prison of a heart attack. And according to Dale Stamphill, the man in the escape attempt in 1939, the guys with Doc Barker who tried to get out of D-Block and make that raft on the beach, uh, so he basically says that George Machine Gun Kelly earned a new name on Alcatraz, Pop Gun Kelly, <laughs> because of his big fish stories. Like, nobody really takes him seriously, he just got a bunch of, you know, wild big fish stories, really, like, that's the best way to put it. Um, and apparently the guards reported him to be a model inmate uh, during his time at Alcatraz. Apparently his, like, brutal, like, aggressive persona uh, wasn't really a thing in Alcatraz. He was just kind of, like, an easygoing, funny, like-to-tell-big-crazy-stories guy. Always talked about, like, his car and his, his blonde women, you know. So, you know, again, take it for what you will. It is what it is. Also... Again, you have Doc Barker, son of the infamous Ma Barker, was part of the uh, Barker crime family and also the Barker Carpus gang. Uh, both Doc Barker and previously mentioned Alvin Creepus Krampus, <laughs> Krampus um, Alvin Creepy Carpus, were both sent to Alcatraz sometime in 1936. So a couple of years later, you know, after being opened, they're both sent there. Uh, Alvin Carpus was public enemy number one. Carpus spent the most time in Alcatraz of any other prisoner. He spent 26 years from August 1936 to April 1962. Because of like money issues and some other stuff that we talked about earlier, Alcatraz had began the closing process in 1962. Carpus was transferred to McNeil Island Penitentiary in Washington, that island prison that we were talking about earlier. Uh, so he gets transferred there in 1962 where, side note and crazy fucking fact, he meets a young Charles Manson. Yes, that Charles Manson. In his autobiography, Carpus uh, states that Manson approached him for guitar lessons and he obliged. Along with Carpus, uh, Mickey Cohn, he was also, I believe, public enemy number one in the 50s, and then uh, Robert Franklin Stroud, the Birdman of Alcatraz, were also all sent to uh, McNeil Island Penitentiary, I believe in 1962. Um, if you haven't heard of the Birdman of Alcatraz, he's kind of a famous guy. I don't really understand why he gets so much attention, just aside from that he's a little weird, but I mean, I, I don't know, it is what it is, but there, there's a, I think there's a Hollywood movie or maybe it's just an old documentary or something about him and before he was sent to Alcatraz, he was at McNeil Island Penitentiary, and this is where he had the bird. He had a bunch of birds, and he used to, you know, write books and, and study his birds and blah blah blah. Um, in 1916, at McNeil Island Penitentiary, he basically brutally killed a prison guard by stabbing him a bunch, and 
or a couple times, and that's why he was sent to Alcatraz. When Alcatraz closed, he was basically just sent back, and then he died in 1963. Now, everything that I saw about him was like, he's a cold-blooded killer, he'd kill you for nothing, but I think he was only like responsible for killing two guys, and one of them was that prison guard. So maybe it was three guys, maybe he killed a, he had killed a, another inmate at some point, but it wasn't a lot. Like I remember thinking like, okay, he's a cold-blooded killer, but I mean, some of these other guys, they have body counts. Like he's got a couple murders. Like, I mean, it seems light in comparison to some of the other guys he was like on the rock with. But I guess his, his big thing, why he gained so much attention was because he showed no remorse. And so they really just like treated him like like the worst of the worst inmates that they could ever possibly have. And he was in solitary confinement the entire time he was imprisoned in Alcatraz. Um, basically, he had his own type of solitary confinement. He had kind of a big room as a cell, but he was never allowed to leave. He never went into the rec yard. He never he wasn't allowed to keep birds anymore. Uh, he wasn't allowed to speak to anybody. Uh, the guards couldn't talk to him, and he couldn't talk to the guards. Like, occasionally they would take him out, and he would have to go, like, you know, to a, a hearing or to do, you know, something specific, like medical attention or something. But really, like, the only thing he got to do was one of the guards would play checkers with him. But, again, they, they couldn't talk. They weren't allowed to talk to each other. So it is what it is, but it's one of the crazy stories that was part of Alcatraz, you know, that's part of the evolution of Alcatraz. He gets sent back to the prison that he had been sent away from <laughs> in 1962, and then he dies in 1963. So getting back to the escapes, I hope that kind of puts it into perspective. Like during that 29 years of operation, most of the Alcatraz population stayed the same, including the guards, as we'll see in this next main attempt. But all of these guys, like, they're all there the whole time. Like, a couple of them will try to escape. Some of them will die or just get recaptured. And then they come back back into population with the rest of the guys and kind of tell their stories and what happened. You know, like, the rumors spread and the story and the history and the legends are kind of beginning to grow. But they're all still stuck together in this fucking, on this fucking rock. Like, it's madness. Okay, so let's take a quick break, and uh, we'll come right back after these tunes. And we're back. So... There's one character that kind of has come up once already. Um, this is going to be Officer Harold Stites. This is the guy who, in 1938, he stopped the three guys from getting out on, on the roof. Like, he shot a couple of the guys, and the other guys surrendered in a different area. So this is the guy who kind of stopped one of the uh, previous attempts. Okay, So he comes to the prison in 1937. And he was previously a guard at the Leavenworth prison in Kansas. It's just, it's funny how like the certain same names and, and places and people keep coming up. Like everyone is either from like Leavenworth or Atlanta, like even the guards, like it's just, it's 
so these guys are like they all know each other <laughs> and are familiar with each other they're used to seeing each other and like hearing about each other and like it's just it's a wild time and so needless to say Stites is familiar with many of these inmates these prisoners like he knows he knows all of them he's known all of them for a while so he came to the prison in 1937 and it's 1946 so it's been about it's been nine years since he has been like on the job like he's pretty experienced at this point right like he's been doing this job for nine years so you know he's experienced nine years of people trying to get out of jail so and a lot of these same guards have as well also i guess it's kind of important to think about like stites isn't afraid of using his weapon like he's already shot and killed he shot and killed one prisoner and then shot and injured another so i mean he's certainly not afraid to use his weapon so there's another guy that's pretty important so this that keeps coming up so this guy joe kretzer uh we talked about him earlier he had the kind of the weak escape plan uh he tried to get out with a couple guys and they tried to like they overtook a guard a couple guards they um they could they were their plan was to saw through the bars and they couldn't do it so they just kind of gave up so he's also the guy who was in the kretzer kyle gang he came to prison from mcneil island which he escaped from and survived on the island for like three days with his friend arnold kyle who was also head of that gang with him He's, just, he's attempted escape a number of times, but that's not something he seems successful with. Anyways, so in 1941, Kretzer fails his first escape attempt. Like, he was there for one year and tried to escape and failed. Most of his privileges were revoked, but sometime in 1944, he was allowed time in the rec yard where he was assaulted by this other guy that keeps coming up, Henry Young, the guy with Doc Barker's gang, who once he got out of solitary, he he killed that guy. So he, as soon as he gets out into the rec yard, Joe Kretzer, Henry Young, and him get in a fight. So then, while in lockdown, from this fight with Young, Kretzer meets this guy named Bernard Coy, and basically from there they begin to plan their next escape. And basically the way they do it, like after a couple years, like two years of like pretty careful planning, uh, Joe Kretzer, he's kind of the ringleader, right? He's like the guy leading the group. And then you have Bernard Coy, who's the brains. He's the one making the plan, figuring out how to kind of get out. It takes him, you know, two years of planning. And that's not, at least to me, from the outside looking in, like it doesn't seem like Kretzer is the one for planning, like... Places. I mean, I don't know. He got out and survived for three days on the island, so I don't know. He snuck. I think he stole a truck or stole a garbage truck or snuck out in a garbage truck, something like that, and then stole it. Um, but again, it's an island, so he just like hid out. Him and Arnold Kyle hid out in the woods with no food or water and until they like you know are gonna die anyway. So they and then they were found. It's an island. <laughs> it's not that big. Not many places to hide. So. I don't know. It's just they had no way off the island and no plan, I guess, for that or whatever. But uh, seems like from what I was getting, Bernard Coy is the uh, the brains of everything. So joining them was 
newly arrived 18-year-old Clarence Carnes, who was the youngest person ever to be sent to Alcatraz. He was 18 years old, uh, and he was pretty eager to please. You know, you're trying to, like, fit in and, and, and not get killed. It must be insane, like, <laughs> going to prison with all these fucking mobsters and fucking guys like Machine Gun Kelly and fucking Al Capone, and you've read about them in the paper and heard about them on the radio, and that's, like, nationwide. People know about these guys, so it's fucking crazy. And he's 18 years old, like, trying to, like, not get himself killed, probably. So he gets involved with the group, with the escape. And then you have a guy named Mirren uh, Thompson. He went by Buddy Thompson, uh, who has escaped custody eight times before being sent to Alcatraz. So <laughs> this guy's, like, an escape artist, basically. Like, he's just, like, a, he's escaped either prison or being transferred somewhere or something. Like, he's escaped eight times. Uh, this guy named Marvin Hubbard, who escaped from prison, uh, he kidnapped a Tennessee cop and took him across a couple of borders. And then once he, once he was caught, he was sent to this, uh, to Atlanta, um, federal penitentiary and was only sent to Alcatraz after inciting a riot <laughs> at Atlanta. He was part of the group. Uh, that's Marvin Hubbard. And then you have finally Sam Shockley. He was with Kretzer on the first attempt, if you can remember. And it's kind of funny because he was a bit more of a loose cannon. Uh, he call it like a wild card, <laughs> uh, if you will. But uh, apparently he was only with the group because it was too risky to leave him out. Like, according to Coy, at least, Shockley would have pretty much alerted other inmates or the guards if he was left out. Like, he would have, like, whenever the... Whenever the um, attempt was going down he probably would have just fucked it up somehow you know that's how they felt at least so they they he was part of the group and i mean sometimes like if you're in that position you're like hey man like now i know your plan like i'm a part of this or nobody's getting out you know take me with you or i'll ruin it and some people have that attitude so i mean you try what you can to get out i guess but um so either way on may 2nd 1946 the six inmates put their plan in motion. Now, in the Battle of Alcatraz, you have a lot of, like, first times. So it's the first time six men tried to escape. Uh, it's the first time two inmates tried to escape again, Joe Kretzer and Sam Shockley. And probably most significantly, the first time inmates went for the guns and attempted to fight their way out. To sum it up, their plan was to fight their way out to the docks, steal a boat, and escape, more or less. They weren't trying to swim. <laughs> uh, what actually happened was a story for Hollywood, really, at least until almost 20 years later when Morris and the Anglin brothers would, you know, kind of steal the show. So, the Battle of Alcatraz. Over two years of planning after Joe and, and Bernie <laughs> uh, became co-conspirators, okay? So, Bernard Coy, uh, he studied the prison. He studied the guards, their routines, their movements, what they could and couldn't be trusted with, what they could do, where, you know, he kind of tested some, some limits, I'm sure, and tested their trust, how much they really trusted him with. And then on May 2nd, two years later, after he, you know, he felt ready, around 1.30 p.m., Coy knew there were less guards around on duty. 
and most of the inmates would take a nap. So he knew like these guys are a lot of them are going to lunch this time of day, like it's it's shift change or whatever is going on. He knew there were less guards, you know, out and on duty. And so also around this time of day, most inmates are taking their naps. Uh, it's the heat of the day, you know, whatever you want to think. But a lot of the guys are taking their naps for some reason just around this time. Coy has kind of observed all of this and put it into his plan. He knows that this is like the dead time in the day. As soon as one of the guards left for basically just his lunch break, like he was going to be gone just for a little bit and I'm sure he'd be back, Coy uh, knew it's now or never. So Coy runs over to the library and taps a signal on the door to D-block, okay, which signaled to four of the men that the attempt was about to begin, okay? The the attempt had begun, you know, it's it's going down. Boom, boom, boom. You know, when I give the signal, shit's starting, so everybody knows this is part of the plan. Next, he went to the kitchen and basically signaled Marvin Hubbard, who then hit a butcher knife in his shirt. When he finished his work, he asked the, the guard if he could go, you know, can I, can I run over to the rec yard? Uh, so the guard starts patting him down. He's like, yeah, sure, whatever. This guy's name is Bill Miller, okay? So he's like, yeah, sure, you know, you can go. You run over to the, to the rec yard. That's fine. But I got to pat you down. So he starts patting him down. While he's patting him down, Officer Bill Miller was grabbed from behind by Bernard Coy. So he just kind of comes up behind him and, and grabs him behind the back, pins both of his arms behind his back, okay? And then Hubbard... <laughs> just started beating the shit out of him. Miller was quickly knocked out, and to make matters worse, budget cuts the year before had left a guard tower unmanned, so no one saw the attack. So, Coy then grabbed the keys from Miller, from his belt, and he basically knew exactly which one would open the control box, and basically all the levers that open the different cells, and all the cells, or, you know, different cells or whatever. Uh, he basically gained access to opening all the cells. Then Coy took Miller and took all his clothes, tied him up and gagged him, and then put him in an unused cell and locked him in. Next, Coy went and unlocked the cells of Kretzer, Carnes, and Thompson. So now you got, you got Kretzer's out, Carnes uh, is out, and Thompson's out. Carnes is the 18-year-old. And then you also have Hubbard just beat the shit out of Miller in the kitchen. And then you have Coy's, you know, they're all free. So there's five guys free. The only one still locked up is Shockley. So as soon as, like, he unlocks their cells, Carnes, Kretzer, and Thompson are all kind of, like, super surprised that this is going this well. So Kretzer then goes and helps Coy with the next phase of the escape, which is covering Coy in axle grease. Somehow they had, you know, stashed away some axle grease from the from the shop, and Coy had ingeniously lost 30 pounds in the months leading up to this escape for this moment. A lot of foresight going into this plan, you know? Also, a lot of moving parts. A lot of things have to go right, and I guess any kind of hiccup or hitch in your plan, like, it can kind of fucking derail the whole thing. So, with his entire body covered in grease, Coy climbs up the west end of the gun gallery, which is basically just a big barred cage full of all kinds of weapons and different, basically just different weapons. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, I think there was guns, there was ammunition, there was there was the batons, there was the 
there was like uh, gas canisters, like kind of like gas grenades. So they had uh, these thing called gas billies, and it was basically just a gas canister at the end, attached to the end of the billy club that you could kind of shoot off into somebody's face. So that's what's kind of in this gun gallery. So once Koi is all greased up, he climbs up on top of this gun gallery. It's basically like a cage inside this this building. So he climbs up on top and he uses this homemade bar spreader to open the top of the cage, kind of like the one that Doc Doc Barker used earlier in one of the attempts. So he uses this bar spreader to kind of pry open one of the one of the bars in the cage in the top of the cage. He then drops down into the weapon cache, really just kind of like squeezes himself through. He said he fucking hurt, you know, going through. He claimed that it, that it was painful. And then he, once he gets down in it, he kind of like gets down to the ground, stays low and out of the sight of the window. And he just kind of waits. He, I think he grabbed a billy club and he just kind of waits. Um, there's a window and a guard tower can see inside. So he drops down, grabs this billy club and stays down out of the window. And then basically just waits. So right around this time is when the wild card joins the group. Okay, So Shockley <laughs> just starts screaming like a madman. Just starts going crazy. And losing his shit. Banging on his bars. Doing, you know, just going crazy. So then the guard responding calls for assistance to help him basically get everything under control. Then the nearest guard was the man in charge of guarding the gun cage who is currently unaware that Koi is inside the gun cage. <laughs> when the guard went to open the door from D-Block, Koi was ready, pretty much waiting for him in the gun cage or in the in D-Block, wherever he was. Basically, this guy goes to open the door to D-Block. Koi's right there, ready and waiting with this billy club in his hand. And as the door opens, Koi jumps up and kicks the fucking door back into the guard's face. He then proceeds to beat the shit out of the guard with the billy club. He basically has to wrestle with the guard. It does, like, knock him back. And he has to wrestle with his guard for a second. But this guard's got a rifle with him. So there's a lot of things going on. So he then wrestles with the guard and gets the guard's rifle. And then he continues to beat the shit <laughs> out of the guard. Basically beats him unconscious. And then he drags him to the gun gallery and ties him to a pole. So... <laughs> probably just like full of adrenaline at this point just got in the fight fucking beat the shit out of this guy and won you know so at that point he basically also strips the guard of everything so he takes the guard's belt his keys his shoes guns you know weapons everything he's just like stripping him you know and leaves him there tied up meanwhile joe kretzer had subdued another guard and tied him up with the first guard bill miller who came from the kitchen Koi then handed out some supplies from the gun gallery, probably just a bunch of ammo, and you know, everybody's kind of already got guns, I'm sure, at this point. But he hands out a bunch of weapons and ammunition and different stuff, because they went for a while. So he hands all this stuff out. Within the first 30 minutes, they had taken down nine guards and had them locked in two cells in the gun gallery. Koi's next move was fucking brilliant. He then used the guards' keys to open every cell on the top two tiers of D-Block. The inmates were now completely free of their cells, and the next phase was getting out of D-Block. But there was a problem. The key to the rec yard door wasn't on the key ring that they had taken from Bill Miller. Okay, so earlier he takes down Bill Miller in the, in the kitchen and takes his key ring. He's supposed to have 
this uh, key to the wreck yard door. Again, Coy had studied this shit and knew who had what key at what time. You know, they were constantly, you know, if you have to go into D block, you have this key. And then you hand it off to the guy guarding D block when you leave. And he knew he, that Bill Miller was supposed to have this key, but the key wasn't on the key ring. <laughs> the plan was to then take the guards hostage down to the docks and steal the boat. Essentially, that was their ticket off. But without the key, they were stuck. They're stuck in D block. They could get out of their cells, but they and you know walk around anywhere in D block, and the gun gallery. But they couldn't couldn't get out of there. It's a building inside of a building inside of a building. You know, like they're just still stuck. Koi and Kretzer, basically, like I said, Kretzer's the ringleader, but Koi's kind of the guy who is the brains of the operation. So they kind of argue for a second about like what what to do. I'm sure things are super tense. They just they got nine guards <laughs> tied up in the fucking couple of fucking cells. Like one of them is a pretty small cell, so he, they made it seem like they were really packed in. So everything's really tense. Shit's hitting the fan, and nobody outside, at least yet, knows what's going on. Like the alarm isn't sounded yet. Nobody's aware of what's going on just yet. So it's tense, and they're trying to figure out what's going on and what to do. Miller was supposed to have the key. So Coy went back to him. And basically, Miller had, like I said, had gotten the key from the guard at the gun gallery. He went into D-Block, and then was supposed to give the key back after, you know, after he was done in D-Block. But he had put the key in his shirt pocket and forgot. So... Like, it wasn't on the key ring when he gave the key ring back, okay? So he had, he just was being lazy. He told Koi it must be in the gun gallery because he gave the key ring back, but it wasn't on the key ring. Anyways, but Koi had already stripped that guard and searched that whole area, so he knew, like, it shouldn't be there, right? So Koi was like, okay. So he thought about it, and he thought, okay, it might be somewhere in the gun gallery. Koi is basically down the hall. Like, the gun gallery is, like, down the hall from where he's got this guy tied up. So he's basically, like, right down the hall, freaking out, looking for this key. Probably turning shit over, fucking freaking out a little bit. Also, remember, there's a window in there, so he's not inside of the window, but he's probably losing his shit a little bit. And it's the one thing, you know, that stands between him and, and freedom right now. Like, this is the hitch in his plan. And at that same time, some of the guards ask Joe Kretzer... If they can loosen Bill Miller's ropes, his bindings, because it's starting to, you know, they want to alleviate some of the discomfort. He just got the shit kicked out of him, and they're like, hey, can we just loosen his shit a little bit? He's fucking sitting really tough because of it, you know, blah, blah, blah. Surprisingly, Kretzer's like, fine, dude, fine. You're locked in a cell, fine. You know, I'm sure he's like, whatever. Like, you're not getting out. So at this time, Miller hands the key to another guard who hides it behind a toilet. I couldn't tell if he handed it to him or if he like pulled it from his pocket. He told him it was in his pocket, like I got it. But either way, Miller knew it was in his pocket and that was the key that everybody was looking for. And he told this other guard who got it from him and basically just hid it behind this toilet in the cell that they were in. Around that time, Coy kind of realizes that Miller must be lying. Like he must be bullshitting and he, he, he's got to know. He's the only guy who had the key. He's got to know where it is. So Coy and Kretzer pretty like angrily <laughs> search the guard 
and really just aggressively kind of going at him like searching like what's left of him sitting there you know and nothing so then they thought maybe one of the other keys would possibly work like maybe there's some unmarked key or spare key and they haven't marked as something else but it's a spare key so they begin like frantically trying all the other keys <laughs> no luck like it's insane but like i can just imagine it's like uh it's, <laughs> it must have just been insane to watch you know if you could have watched it but uh the, so they probably just they start trying all the other keys and nothing nothing's working at this point tensions are super high expectedly high everybody's super stressed out and shockley is like let me beat one of the guards for some info slash fun probably like he's like let me beat one of them up and we'll see if they start talking then you know and so shockley is like really kind of latches on to this idea let me beat one of them up so much so that joe and marvin had to point their guns at shockley to get him to back off like hey man don't make us shoot you you're a wild card but you're not it's not we have not called your name yet <laughs> you did your part and wait till your next part you know like your thing was the crazy shit in the cell right now we need not we need no crazy <laughs> uh so from that point on their problems really just start to add up their shit really starts to fucking hit the fan you know not only could they not get out of d-block but other prisoners returning from work detail couldn't get back in now. <laughs> so some time is kind of taken away. They did a lot of things really quickly, but they, they've halted. And this is not going the way it's supposed to be anymore. And now prisoners are starting to come back either from work or from, you know, from lunch. Maybe they had been taken somewhere or whatever. Prisoners are starting to come back to D-Block and they're not able to get in. Okay. There were even some reports of inmates walking around. I think they said they were walking around aimlessly and they should be in their cells or in their cell house. I mean, I don't know what I would do. Like if I was <laughs> like, hey, I'm trying to go back to my cell like I'm supposed to, but it's locked and nobody's answering. So I'm not trying to escape here. I'm just going to walk around in circles and not do anything. I would just sit down probably. Finally... Koi returned to the cell with the key, insisting that it's got to be there. Like, he's like, no, everybody fucking move around, move, it's here. So, again, tensions are super high. He's he's like, I got to find this goddamn key right now. So he's moving everybody out of the way, looking around. Finally, he finds it behind the toilet. And he's probably like, boom, like, got it, bitches. Like, you guys are all fucked. I'm getting out of here. This is it. Like, he's probably, like, super fucking relieved. So Bernie finds the key and he gives it to Thompson to unlock the door. But the key doesn't work. He tries it a number of times and it doesn't work. Bernard Coy had missed one, probably the most, I mean, clearly the most important detail of the escape because, because he missed it, it became the most important detail. The door to the wreck yard had a deadbolt lock that was basically designed to jam if it was if it was tampered with if it was fucked with and they had already they had earlier already tried with so many other keys that essentially it enacted the safety mechanism in the door 
and the key was fucking useless now. Like, it was just the deadbolt's locked, and it's not, it's not unlocking right now. I think I think it could only be locked out or unlocked from the outside at this point. Sometime while all this is happening, there's another guard in a different part of the prison who had been calling the phones in D block, and nobody had been answering. I'm not sure how many times he called or you know what, but he called a couple times and nobody answered. And so he was kind of like, what the hell is going on? I'm like, should I, is this a big deal? And so this narc calls the warden at his house. And the warden is like, hey, I'm not there. So you got to make this call, man. Like, this is up to you. I'm not, I'm not there. I can't make this decision. I can't make this call. So you deal with it. Now, something to understand anytime there's an escape like a bunch of alarms go off and people you know they call the coast guards if somebody's really escaped escaped like they call coast guards they've got perimeters set up all over they get they call the police stations and all the counties around and set up perimeters and stuff and alert everybody and a, a huge alarm goes off that can be heard like from in san francisco like on the beach and everywhere like it's just everybody knows something's happening on alcatraz when something's happening on alcatraz everybody in that area so that's important to know this guy's not going to alert everybody uh, unless he's unless he's for sure okay let's just put it like that so the guard hangs up and at 207 he hits the alarm so he's probably sitting there thinking like fuck do i hit the alarm do i not hit the alarm do i alert everybody do i not alert everybody which also again not only alerted everybody in San Francisco, but alerted the escapees that they were aware of what's going on, or at least something's going on. So I'm sure at that point, Koi was like, uh, not today. <laughs> like, from what happens on here on out, like, this is, they hear the alarms and they're probably like, mm -mm, not me. I'm not going out like this. Like, I'm getting off this fucking island. I've spent two years planning this. He's probably like, I am I am not failing right now. Whatever it takes, you know? Sometimes people have those moods, those moments where they will do anything, whatever it takes to fucking try and get what they want or succeed at what they're trying to do. So he grabs a rifle and runs to the bakery and, and knocks out a couple of the glass windows. And at this point where he's located... He can aim at two different guard towers. And one of the guard towers, two guards come out basically to check on the scene. You know, they hear the alarm, they're looking around, and he kicks out. They might have heard something, kicks out a couple of these windows. And so they come out. Two guards. And Koi shoots at one of them, hits him in the leg. I think he shoots at the other one, but he misses him. So this is the first time they've used a gun. Like, so far they've just used the guns to take the other guards hostages but they haven't actually used they haven't actually fired the weapon yet so this is the first time he shoots the gun and he hits one of the guards in the leg and misses the other one but either way the guard you know takes cover they both take cover and he tries i'm sure to get the other the injured guard out so now you have a prisoner shooting at your guards so captain of the guards henry weinhold I mentioned him a couple times, I think, already. He decides to take measures into his own hands, and he grabs a gas billy, which is that thing that I was talking about earlier. It's a gas can, I think it's tear gas, connected to the end of a, of a billy club, and 
runs in alone. He's just kind of like this ex ex army guy, ex marine guy, you know, captain of the guards, and he he's gonna solve the problem. So he runs in alone, and almost immediately, Weinhold runs into Shockley, and this is just this is like written for Hollywood almost, like it's fucking hilarious. So he runs into Shockley pretty much right as soon as he gets in. Shockley swings at Weinhold, but Weinhold ducks, okay? Then Weinhold swings at Shockley and hits him square in the mouth. (laughs) And Shockley's basically unfazed. Like, it just pisses him off more. So Weinhold somehow gets away from Shockley. And... Shockley just goes apeshit on the closest guard. Like he, the the closest thing he can beat the shit out of, he just goes bananas on. And the other inmates grab Weinhold and kind of tie him up and get him, you know, take him down. Kind of imagine what you got going on. You now you have the guards know it's an escape attempt or at least an attempt of something. They're taking action. You got the captain of the guards just ran in, and now you have Shockley going crazy on somebody. Like, <laughs> you can't put that cat back in the bag. Like, that that guy's wild carding out over there. So next, you have the assistant warden, who's the second, com- second in command. The first guy was just the captain of the guards. This guy's the assistant warden, the second in command. He tries the exact same thing. <laughs> He runs in solo with a gas billy. But <laughs> but this time, Koi is kind of like taking a higher position. I think he was somewhere in D-blocks. He sees him coming. And Koi fires two shots, one of which hits the gas can as soon as the guy runs in the room, exploding in the man's face, who then retreats. <laughs> so he takes a position further back. And it just must have been like so... Oh my god, it just, again, it's like written for Hollywood. It's just like such a funny thing to imagine. Like, the whole way he runs in and then it just, he shoots it and it blows up in his own face. Like, it's just so perfect. So then he's, you know, burned up and his eyes are probably destroyed. Uh, Their next move was basically to call the police, the army, the FBI, and everybody. Like, we've lost control of this situation. We need to alert everybody and... We need to establish that escape perimeter in the surrounding areas. This kind of what I talked about earlier, but they call all the local police and let them know, like, hey, this is happening. Establish your perimeters, and we'll be in contact. You know, we'll stand by, you know. So back in the cell house, the six men were at a crossroads as to what to do next. Coy and Kretzer and Hubbard are talking, and they agree we're going to go down fighting. Like, they're not going to take us alive today. This is this is our shot. This is our chance. And they thought they could do it. They felt like they could fight their way out. So they threw Weinhold into a cell with the other guards and just waited. Weinhold then explains, like, kind of the policies of the, of the prison. And he's like, hey, man, he's trying to reason with him and, and shit, you know, playing the negotiator. And... He's like, yeah, man, the rule is to never trade the life of a hostage for the freedom of a prisoner. I'm sure he's like, especially us, like, we're military. We've signed up for this shit. We knew this shit going in. Like, this is the risk we're taking. 
we're not just civilians out here. We're dead men. So Kretzer, and he's probably like, this is going to be a lot better for you if you just don't kill us, you know? Sure. So then Kretzer comes up with a new idea. And he's like, okay, now guys, come over here. Everybody circle up, huddle up. Hey, if we kill all the guards, no one will ever know who is involved. Basically, as long as no one rats in the group or in the prison at all, all of D-Block knows that it's them right now. They're the ones with the guns who let everybody out. Again, remember, all these guys are free from their cells right now. Uh, so as long as none of them talk and nobody in the group talks, none of the nobody will know. As long as they kill all the guards, nobody will know still, which is kind of a crazy thing to think about. So Thompson is like, hell yeah. And Shockley is probably like, he's probably dancing with joy. He's like, fuck yeah. So they agree, right? Thompson and Shockley agree. Uh, Weinhold is still trying to reason with Kretzer and asks them to stop before it goes any further. And Kretzer walks over and shoots Weinhold in the chest, just walks over to the cell and shoots him. Just boom. Like, he's still like, hey, man, like, he's still like, hey, like, you, there's still a way out. You can still, please, like, we can stop this before it goes any, any further, before anybody gets hurt. And Kretzer just walks over and shoots him in the chest. And then kept shooting all the other guards in the cell. You know, like, just boom, boom, boom. This is intense all of a sudden. I'm sorry. It gets a little worse before it gets better, so just bear with us. One cell over was all the other captives listening, you know, just to bodies dropping and hearing the gun going off. So they're probably just, you can imagine their fear. He then reloaded and then continued with the next cell of guards. And basically, like, without getting a full agreement from it, like, it wasn't a unanimous vote. He just got a couple of votes and just, and just was like, I'm the leader and I'm doing this, you know, and goes over and just starts shooting everybody. It's fucking crazy. Jesus Christ, fucking crazy. So then he gets to this last guy and he considers mercy. You know, it's it's a guy who he had known who had been kind to him before. And he kind of thinks about, like, he's, like, hesitating, you know. And then Shockley and Thompson, they're kind of like, hey, man, no witnesses. Like, we cannot, the fuck are you doing? Like, stop it. Kill him. And then Kretzer looks at the guy and says, sorry, and shoots him in the head. Okay, so this shit just got super real. Like, he just went over and shot fucking nine people. This shit got real, real, real quick. Okay, so around about 3.30, the Marines begin to arrive at the island. All right, so they started all this around 1.30, so it's been about two hours. And now the Marines are already showing up because this shit's gotten out of control. And this discussion becomes about what to do and how to go, how to handle this moving forward, really. Like, what to do next. So then the plan was eight guards would rush the gun gallery and from there enter D-block. So that's the plan. You got, they're going to have eight guys run in, bum rush the place, you know, and, and... take the gun gallery and then from there they'll go into D block as they enter the gallery they could smell tear gas 
one thing that's kind of weird to me is that the Marines start getting there, but they don't send any Marines in right away. Like, they send the guards in. <laughs> They're like, uh-uh, this is your problem. We'll bring our guns and our toys, but you'll be the ones to do the work, really. So one of the first guards, so there's eight guards running into the gun gallery trying to get into T-Block. One of those guards is our guy, Harold Stites. Good old Harry. So he's one of the first guys in to T-Block. Okay, so you got these eight guards. They're in the gun gallery. They've taken this area, and they're trying to get in. And Harold Stites, one of the first guys in a D-Block. The problem here was that as soon as they come in to the gun gallery, Koi and Kretzer are basically waiting and watching them. Like, they can see, if you can kind of imagine, I believe they're up in D-Block on a, on a higher one of the higher tiers and so they're looking down and they can kind of see what's going on and when when people are coming they have a really good vantage point on what the guards are doing pretty much their every movement from the description that i got i couldn't tell if koi and kretzer were hiding like right above the gun gallery i was pretty sure it was somewhere in the in d block like up above on one of those tiers they had a pretty good location to hold up in uh so coin kretzer began to fire on the guards and the guards attempted to fire back but like i said like they're kind of shooting up and we could just imagine a big cement like balcony you know i'm sure with like a bar railing but like still has like the cement floor so you can't really shoot through that so they've got a pretty good vantage point shooting down and the guards can't really accomplish anything by shooting back really unless they get a little lucky after a bit of a shootout, Harold Stites and three other officers were hit. And so they pulled back, you know, to get some cover in the gun gallery. Harold Stites would soon bleed out, and the hero of 1938 would not be the hero of 1946. Side note, he died by friendly fire. It wasn't even from the inmates. So that's kind of sad. But uh, for the rest of the day, and well into the night, the Marines, the guards, and the prisoners would exchange fire. Around 8 p.m., they found and released all the hostages and the wounded officers. And they locked the open door on D-Block to the gun gallery. So now everybody's locked back into D-Block. Okay, so now the Marines and the guards and the island, everybody, officers, they have control of the gun gallery again. Not that it matters very much because they took what they needed, but it is important. Uh, that evening, the Marines just begin shooting grenades into the cell house, and basically just over and over and over, they're not really stopping. Kind of just a barrage of just like gunfire and, and grenades over and over. Now, remember, there are other prisoners in D-Block. There's a few hundred, to be more specific, who were not up for this shit. They were not... They were not in on the escape. They were not, like, in on the plan. They were not prepared for any of this shit. And they were probably most certainly terrified. So some of the reports of most of them were just, like, trying to hide behind their mattress. Like, they just lift their mattress up while the whole fucking building shakes over and over every time that grenade goes off. Like, must have just been insane. <laughs> It must have been fucking crazy. And they're just constantly shooting into the fucking cell house all night. Like, 
all afternoon. It must have just been crazy. By the next morning, so this is May 3rd. So that was May 2nd. This is May 3rd. This is just the next day. So by the next morning, they were no closer to resolving this matter. Uh, the Marines then decided to bring in some heavy artillery, like bazookas and anti-tank mortars. You know, they bring in the big guns, the big toys. And they arrived sometime around 11 a.m. Now here's another detail that's not super clear, but somehow word got to the innocent inmates to get into the hallways and corridors and corners of every, you know, lay down, get low, take cover on the ground. As if they hadn't already been trying to do that, but somehow they got word to them. I don't know if they had like a loudspeaker that they were speaking to everybody, but basically they got word to them that, you know, get to the hallways and corridors and lay down because this shit's about to get taken up a level. So next, the Marines put a tunnel expert on the roof above where they thought Coy and Kretzer were located. He drilled holes in the roof and dropped grenades into the jailhouse. So he's on top of there just like, it's a pretty smart plan when you think about it, especially they thought that that was right in the room or right in the area that Kretzer and Coy were located. So he's dropping these grenades in, and after each grenade, the guards kind of try and search the area for any armed men. Sometime around 12 o'clock on May 3rd, the warden gets a phone call from D-Block. And it's Kretzer in an attempt to make a deal. The warden is like, "Uh uh-uh, no deal. The only thing that's going to happen here is you're 100% surrender no deal Kretzer then replies you're never gonna take me alive have a good day so that happened right around 12 o'clock later that evening the marines started firing on the cell block pretty much constantly until about nine o'clock at night then they they back off a little bit around 9 p.m and they're kind of trying to figure out what their next move is On the morning of May 4th, so the next morning, the Marines start sending in groups of men into the cell block, firing repeatedly. Around about 9.40 a.m., they found the bodies of Joe Kretzer, Bernard Coy, and Marvin Hubbard. Coy and Kretzer were found wearing officers' uniforms, and their bodies were cold to the touch, meaning they probably died sometime in the night before. Hubbard's body, though, was found still warm. He probably just died minutes before they came in. As for Sam Shockley, Buddy Thompson, and Clarence Carnes, uh, they were all recaptured, and a few weeks later they stood trial for their escape attempt. Ultimately, Shockley and Thompson got the death penalty. On December 3rd, 1948, so almost two years later, uh, they were taken to San Quentin where they were simultaneously executed in the gas chamber. Side note, because of, you know, that whole aspect of it, I kind of looked into the, the gas chamber stuff and that, that's a fascinating history on its own, but 1999 was the last time the gas chamber was used for execution. And I think it was banned in 1992 but the guy who was designated for the death penalty and he was the last one to be taken to the gas chamber, he was condemned 
in like a year before 1992 or before this came out. So he was designated as the last one who was going to going to be executed this way and it didn't happen until 1999. I think that's what that's that kind of sums it up, I'm pretty sure. <clears throat> and I mean, a side note to that side note, in 2010 they finally outlawed or banned humane societies from using gas chambers. So you weren't able to euthanize you know, the, the euthanization process changes um, in 2010, so just a little bit of extra information for you guys. But wait, what happens to Clarence Carnes, the youngest prisoner to ever be sent to Alcatraz? The rest of his story kind of turns out a little bit wild, like he has kind of a wild story for his life. So Carnes receives a lighter sentence for his part in the uh, attempt. His lawyers proved that he showed restraint towards the hostages. Uh, there was a point when when Kretzer was done shooting them all, uh, he thought they were all dead. So kind of is moving along, moving on, right? Moving away. Apparently, Carnes had saw that they were still breathing and didn't say anything, uh, knowing that if Joe found out, he would just come back and finish the job. Some of the officers held hostage even testified at his hearings that that Carnes restrained from following instructions to kill them and was not directly involved in the murders and attempted murders. Instead, Carnes was given another life sentence for his involvement in the Battle of Alcatraz. He stayed at Alcatraz until it closed in 1963 when he was sent to Leavenworth, Kansas from there. He was then paroled in 1973, but basically due to violations and his parole and he just didn't seem to get used to life on the outside. Like it didn't suit him. He didn't understand it going into jail in like the 1940s or 30s and then getting out in 1973. The world is a lot different. Things have changed. And if you haven't kept up, like you are not going to be suited or at least in the right position to be successful and, and thrive, you know, prosper or whatever. Um, so he kind of, you know, ends up violating his uh, parole a couple times, gets sent back, and then eventually dies in 1988 in uh, Springfield, Missouri, in a medical center um, for federal prisoners. I think he had uh, he died. He had like HIV-related problems or something. But kind of a side note to his story, he was actually hired by a TV show to consult on like the experience of Alcatraz. So he kind of like worked for a, um, a TV show. I didn't see which one, but. I thought that was interesting. I guess he got like 20 grand and then went and blew it all real quick and just wasn't really aware of how to budget money and, you know, and really never had money like that. Like his entire life, adult life is in prison. So like gets 20 grand and doesn't know how to, what to do with that to make it, you know, last or make it better and make it work for you. So he ends up uh, getting sent back to prison and then he dies in 1988. He ends up being buried in Springfield, Missouri and kind of like this other guy, Alvin Creepy Carpus, who meets Charles Manson, this guy, Clarence Carnes, while he was in Alcatraz, he ends up meeting somebody else, this guy named, some of you have probably heard of him, uh, James Whitey Bulger. He's kind of a popular name from the 1950s. He was the leader of the Winter Hill Gang in the Northeast. Uh, he spent time in Alcatraz where he met Carnes in 1959, and they became good friends. Also, uh, Carnes became like the chess champion at the prison. Like he was like became a model inmate and was like a really good inmate. Didn't have any more problems or any attempts or anything like that. But 
I just thought it was funny that he became the chess champion. Well, in 1989, so this is a year after Carney died in 88, James Whitey Bulger paid to have Carnes' body exhumed and then reburied in Oklahoma on a, on a Choctaw Nation land. He even got him a uh, $4,000 bronze casket and had him like transferred, paid for, paid for it all, paid for him to, to be exhumed, have his body be transferred in this casket and then reburied in Oklahoma. And I just thought that was kind of a cool detail to his life that you know most, most podcasts leave out. Not really important to the story, but I thought that was interesting kind of gives perspective again on how like all of these guys are like intertwined and they're all making their stops at at Alcatraz and meeting everybody and so on May 2nd to May 4th two guards Bill Miller and Harold Stites were killed three inmates also died that's um Joe Kretzer Bernard Coy and Marvin Hubbard and 14 others were injured mostly officers I don't think there were any inmates, other inmates injured. All right, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and finish up these last two attempts and then kind of wrap up the episode. So let's take a break and we'll come right back after these two ones. two more escape attempts and then we'll wrap the episode up and then on the next episode we'll take a deep look at the famous escape attempt before we get into the very next attempt it does need to be stated that the conditions at Alcatraz are extremely harsh even compared to other prisons even compared to like today and like just like because of the times and and you know going through the depression and the way money is and everything this the conditions here are extremely harsh and it was designed that way the island itself was designed to break you you could see and hear san francisco you could see and hear freedom and it was like so close but so so far away along with this psychological torture there was also solitary confinement so it was called the hole right you probably everybody hears about that in prison movies and stuff you know going to the hole um spent 10 days in the hole you know it's so it's called the hole right there's five small cells at the bottom of d block we talked earlier about how bernard coy opened the doors to the cells for the top two tiers of d block well the bottom tier is their solitary confinement cells and it's just five cells and four of them are basically just rooms that they have a big steel door and there's no lights, so you, you're in complete darkness. I think there's a little toilet and a little makeshift bed, but it's just like a little cot, or it's really small. It's not very big. It's, the space isn't very large at all, and it's in you're shut in there in complete darkness. I saw this interview. It's fascinating with one of these inmates who had, you know used to be imprisoned on Alcatraz, and he was. It's so funny there the way they talk about it because he was just kind of like. 
it was like seemed like a regular thing like if you're one of the guys who's at Alcatraz like you're kind of there forever you know you're a lifetime prisoner so the only way to punish you like you, you don't have any you almost don't have any rules like what can they do to you give you more time like you're already there for life so what can they really do to you so the only way they punish you is to put you in this they're not going to like beat you i mean i guess they do if you're beating if you're fighting but they're not using physical punishment so the only way to really punish you is to put you in solitary confinement it's just this tiny room you're not with around anybody else and you're in complete darkness so there's one guy who was kind of like he was like you know every time i get put in solitary you know they bring me right to the door he was like they open the door, I walk in, and right as I'm walking in, as they're shutting the door on me, and it's turning to complete darkness, I rip off a button from my coveralls and flick it in the air and wait for it to land. He said he uh, spins around like three or four times, and then he gets on his hands and knees and tries to find the button. And then he does that over and over and over until he gets out of solitary, and that's what he does to like pass the time and keep sane and not not go absolutely batshit crazy i just i thought that was crazy like how the methods that we use to kind of get by and get through things and this type of situation is completely unique to this specific situation or this specific experience which i just think is just it's fascinating to get their insights on what they would do and how they would deal with it but the so those are the four cells they would shut you in complete darkness and then think you got food obviously they would feed you and that was the only time you got any light but other than that you're just kind of in there people will go crazy and then you have the fifth cell which is just a steel box and i think they called it the strip cell because you're same thing it's completely darkness and it's just a steel box everything is steel there's no furniture or anything i'm pretty sure there's a toilet but it's just a hole in the ground and you're usually in there either completely naked or just in your underwear. Like you're not wearing any clothes. And one of the guys was saying like he would sleep standing up so he didn't have to touch anything because they wouldn't heat the box. They wouldn't heat this little cell. So it was just freezing cold, ice cold steel, and you're just stuck in there again in complete darkness. There's nothing. There's no little bed or cot this time. Like there's no you're just in this fucking box like purgatory waiting for nothing really waiting to get out the world's just passing you by time must slow down to like a glacial pace like it just it must be psychologically destructive <laughs> just a, a terrible terrible thing to have to go through so that's the Solitary confinement in D-block. So that's what these a lot of these guys would have to go through as punishment. For 10 years, the shock of the Battle of Alcatraz rang loud on the island. The remaining inmates seemingly fell in line. Like, a lot of people just died and got shot up, and I'm sure the prison guards and everybody kind of clamped down and was things were a lot more strict, and everybody was just kind of on edge and walking on eggshells, like not trying to get in trouble. Certainly not trying to get sent to the hole for any little thing, you know. But in 1953, a man named Floyd Wilson was sent to Alcatraz. He was sent there after being found with pieces of pipe and rope in his cell in Atlanta. 
assuming he was planning to escape. So I do want to step back real quick with this guy Floyd. Many of us don't condone crime, right? Like that's not something we're all advocating for, obviously. But there's a weird paradox here because there's some crime that we kind of rationalize as okay, right? Like, for example, if somebody, many of us would kind of approve of somebody stealing food to feed their families. Like if somebody had to steal bread to feed their family, their child or whatever, because they don't have the money, that's kind of accepted or understood at least like okay well they have no other choice you know they're trying to do this and that and then we kind of rationalize it well enter floyd wilson in an especially cold winter in maryland wilson couldn't find work i'm pretty sure he was a carpenter and he was just struggling to find work and basically attempted to rob a grocery truck he needed 17 bucks so he could buy coal to warm his family he had a wife and five kids. So he's like, I'm going to rob this grocery truck. The driver had 10 grand in the truck and resisted. Wilson panics and accidentally shoots the driver. Kind of like in the whole mess of the situation. Shit goes wrong. He kind of panics. The driver is probably resisting and about to try and arrest him. So instead of like being able to like, I'm sure he was probably like, okay, this isn't going right. I want to just run away. But fuck, this guy's like fighting back now and he's going to have me arrested if I don't get away. So I got to shoot him or something. You know, the gun goes off and it all probably happens so quickly. Floyd Wilson was given the death penalty, but Harry Truman commuted his sentence to life in prison. He kind of saw the story and felt bad and commuted his sentence to life in prison. By all accounts, he did not take well to prison life. Again, this is just like a dad who's just trying to provide for his family and do what he can in a really hard time and struggling, you know. And then so he gets sent to prison, isn't doing well, and sh- and surely is trying to escape. And then gets caught with this pipe and this, you know, pieces of pipe and this rope and then gets sent to Alcatraz. So I'm sure while at Alcatraz, he heard all the stories of the Battle of Alcatraz. You know, he he heard all the stories of all the other attempts. But on July 23rd, 1956, so 10 years after the battle, Wilson had had enough. Like I said, he'd only come to Alcatraz in 1953, so he'd only been there for three years. He had just heard stories, I'm sure, about all the other attempts, you know, all the successes and failures of, of the other guys. Floyd was working on the docks, burning trash, and basically under the cover of smoke, he made his move. Um, It wasn't out of the ordinary to see, you know, this pillar of smoke coming up, and these guys are burning trash, they're trying to get rid of it, and it's just one of the jobs. So he tosses on a, a big rubber tire and makes it, you know, super black smoke, and makes his move. It takes him about 20 minutes until the next head count when he was noticed missing. And then the alarm was sound. It took the guards 12 hours to find him, held up on some large rocks on the shoreline with a, with a long cord of rope. The area where he was at, he, he was sitting in between these two huge rocks, and you couldn't see him from the land, and you couldn't really see him from the, the shoreline or from the boats. You know, you, just the position that he had taken. It was like this little perfect spot where he couldn't really be seen from anywhere so it took him a long time to find him 
he had planned to make a raft, but the 50-degree weather kind of gave him a little pause, I'm sure. He basically gave up and was just returned to the prison. Now, at this point in 1956, there are three remaining escapes, and seven years until Alcatraz officially closes. So, today we're going to cover one more attempt, and then on the next episode we'll get into the final two. But for now, let's just jump ahead two years to 1958. You have a man named Aaron Burgett, Burgett or Burgett, and Clyde Johnson. They become friends and start planning their escape. They had decided to befriend the guards, just build this this false trust and gain employment on a very specific job in the trash department. It's mainly reserved for the best behaved inmates. And they figured this out and they were like, okay, we need to get this, this certain job if we want to break out. With this job, they would be required to trim trees and bushes and kind of do some basic landscaping. And they would gain access to tools like hedge clippers and trimmers and even some axes. And once the positions were obtained, they worked for about six months until things were just right. This is important because they got the positions, you know, you can't really control when you get the job. You know, they had been wanting it, trying to get it. I don't know how they applied for it or whatever, but they've been trying to get, make their way to these positions of work and they finally got them. But once they got the jobs, they had to kind of complete the rest of the plan. So Bridget and Johnson spent months just collecting supplies and like raincoats and probably rope and just different things. I'm sure all kinds of things in case they needed to use something, you know, they're trying to just get as much as they can. If any of it can come in handy, I'm sure that's a good thing. And they were planning to use these raincoats as inflated floats once they were in the water. So you kind of have that idea going again. They also wanted to wait until the time changed from daylight savings to standard time, which would make it darker earlier. So they were, they probably got the job sometime in, in the spring and they wanted to wait until daylight savings when it was you know, it was a little darker. By a stroke of luck, there was a new guard put in charge of, like, the trash department of their area, of them, basically. And by new, I mean, this guy, Officer Harold Miller, he'd only been on the island for about 10 months and was now put in charge of the trash detail. This is an extremely dangerous job because, again, remember, the prisoners are trusted with sharp (laughs) weapons, basically. So, This is a pretty tough job. I don't know why the prison gave it to this rookie. But again, it kind of goes back to that hubris that I was mentioning earlier. Like, they think it's escape-proof, and they're kind of okay with doing certain things, you know, and allowing certain leniences. So, on September 29th, 1958, so middle of fall, Harold Miller checked in at 2.30 p.m., you know, to take them in on assignment, to take these couple of guys out. They were going to go around and do some landscaping and stuff. So on their way back from the job, the two men overpowered the rookie with a paring knife. They bound and gagged him, and the escape was in full swing. Like, they overpowered him. I think they got him separated from the rest of the group. Like, it was not just them three going out on assignment. It was a few other guys, and they kind of got the guard and talked him into, like, hey, we need to go down here and clean out these this area of the fence or this these gutters over here and they got him alone and then they overtook him. Uh, 
They tied him up, bound and gagged him, and, and shit's on. At this point, they decided to split up on the beach. They got down to the beach, and they were like, okay, we got a better chance if we just split up. So Johnson headed west and started to inflate his bag or rain jacket, whatever he had that he was inflating, he starts to inflate it. I saw in some cases that it was a bag, a plastic bag, but I saw in other cases it was like rubber gloves, and then I saw in one it was like raincoats, so I'm not sure. I think it, I mean, I'm sure they stole raincoats. I think they had some, made them into bags or had bags. Either way, they were inflating what they had brought to inflate, okay, <laughs> to use as a float. Johnson had planned to leave the island after dark. He was going to he was going to go find a place to hide and just wait till dark and then he would get in the water and make his way. But in the excitement of it all and I'm sure the adrenaline he just he couldn't wait. However, as soon as he got into the water, the current ripped his float out of his hands and basically claimed it as its own. He gave up right then and there. <laughs> it probably scared him a little bit like he, as he was getting in the water this thing just rips the fucking floaty he had made out of his hands and probably freaked him out a little bit like oh shit that was unexpected uh, by this point the other guards had noticed that Harold the officer was missing at his last check-in and the alarm was sounded so at this point you have Johnson and Burgett are on the beach split up and they've finally noticed that Harold Miller is missing, so everybody can hear the alarms. The alarms are going off, and people know now. Everybody knows that everybody knows. <laughs> Harold Miller was found tied to a tree, unharmed, just tied up, bound and gagged. And about 5 p.m., the Coast Guard found Johnson waist-deep in the water, shivering his fucking nuts off, probably. <laughs> and he did not resist arrest. Aaron Burgett was found 13 days later on October 12th, floating in the bay. This part gets a little brutal, but basically the body was unrecognizable. Uh, the face from decay and the decomp mixed with the marine life had left him with no hair and almost no fingers and toes, so they couldn't really get a good fingerprint match. But they identified the body because... It was found in a prison uniform, and the belt had Aaron Burgett's number on it, 991. I think they said that the warden even wanted to be, like, extra sure, so he tried to get some kind of fingerprint off the side, inside of the hand on one of the thumbs or something, and tried to get this fingerprint to match, and he kind of just took a good look at it and was like, yep, that's him. Like, that's it. That's for sure. That settles it, you know. But... As far as I'm concerned, the belt on the body, that kind of settled it for me. Unless somehow, like the only other explanation is somehow Burgett made it to San Francisco, killed a guy, stripped him and put him in the prison clothes, and then destroyed his face and cut off some of his fingers and toes, and but not all of them, and tossed him in the water, and then that body was found. You know, like that's kind of a stretch, and it's purely speculation. At this point, we're pretty sure that the San Francisco Bay had claimed yet another prison inmate. Or did it? <laughs> so, we're going to go ahead and stop it there. That's the last escape. There's two more after this that we'll get to on the next episode. But for now, I do want to say um, the Theodore Cole and, and Ralph Rowe attempt, their bodies were never found either. And a few of these other guys have at least made it 
pretty far or close or close enough, you know, and who's to say, you know, those guys couldn't have escaped. Some of these bodies that were never found, you know, who's to say they might have, like this last guy, who's to say he didn't kill another guy, put him, dress him in his prison clothes and toss him in the bay, you know, and that's who was found instead of, instead of Aaron Burgett, but really fascinating stuff. I, I really hope you guys like it. This one was like, this is the episode for me, you know, this is, the next episode is, is going to be awesome too, because it's just such a big part of a uh, pop culture in our history, but all of the before, I think really adds and lends itself well to the perspective of like, this is just a bunch of uh, island full of a bunch of hooligans and knuckleheads who like, <laughs> you know, we think we were civilized at a certain time. Like we think like, okay, well we got cars and, you know, airplanes and we can go to the moon. And so we're civilized, but like, no, we didn't have the infrastructure to police people the way we do now and it's because of this it's because of all these knuckleheads out there like you give them uh, machine guns and cars and pretty much no rules or regulations on how to (laughs) no wonder no wonder it's the way it is but anyways i digress i hope you enjoyed it i thought it was fascinating and again i think it just lends itself to the perspective of this is just one island with a bunch of guys on it that are just trying to get off and they're kind of all rooting for each other, you know, like this is only here because it's escape proof. If we can prove that we can escape, this will not be here anymore. You know, that's kind of, I'm sure the like group thinking is like, Hey, if we can like beat the system, the system is going to have to figure something else out. And at least for the meantime, for us, that'll mean back to regular prisons where we can break out a lot easier, you know. So I'm sure they knew to an extent that, you know, the funding and the the money wasn't really coming in the way it needed to at Alcatraz. <laughs> I'm sure there was talk about it and rumors and stuff. So, um, so yeah, stay tuned. Uh, next episode, like I said, we're going to be doing the, the last two escapes. So if you're really you know, interested in that story, uh, that'll be coming up uh, on the next episode. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, I hope you guys have a wonderful day. If you have any comments or questions, you can email us at aliensafterdark, the number nine, at gmail.com. And so, yeah, keep looking up because it's always dark somewhere. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye.